I'm Anthony Penn. Welcome to Pen Drop. Uh, my special guest today is Jeremiah Kamara. He is a multi-talented brother. He is an author, director, and producer. First documentary film is Contradiction, A Question of Faith. And then there's another, the title of it is Holy Hierarchy. He's also the author of two books, Holy Lockdown and The New Doubting Thomas. Thanks for hanging out with me for a few minutes. Looking forward to chopping it up. Man, I'm looking forward to this, Anthony. And man, pin drop. Boy, you know I love that, man. <laughs> I wish I could take credit for that. <laughs> Regardless, that is that is on point right there. I like that. Good hearing from you, man. It's been a while. It's fantastic. It's been a minute. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I'd like to start this way. Just if you could give folks a bit of background. Who is Jeremiah? <laughs> wow. Jeremiah uh, Kamar is a man uh, from Cincinnati, Ohio. I moved to Atlanta in 1996. And uh, when I ask a person their name, they would ask me, what church do you go to? <laughs> and I knew <laughs> I knew right then, man, I had to do something because I was uh, non-religious at the time and uh, still am. And uh, I decided to write a book. I uh, did not come from a religious background. Uh, my parents did go to church. They were believers. But I always just uh, felt like I, there was something else out there. I, just so much knowledge out there that I had to learn. I just didn't relegate myself only to the Bible. But uh, I have uh, you know, went on to, to write uh, uh, two books and have two films. One of the films, as you know, that you just mentioned, uh, Holy Hierarchy, you were in. And, man, was one of my best uh commentators uh on that was some fun now you mentioned that question what church you go to and now folks will ask that question and and we both grew up hearing this related question who your people right there was right. a link for folks between those two questions who your people what church do you go to for them exactly. that told them everything they needed to know about your moral and ethical sensibilities that's right. That's right. Uh, I didn't get that question as much here in Atlanta as I did back home. But, uh, I mean, you couldn't talk to anyone. Atlanta is big business. Church is, is huge business here. You know, we just had Creflo saying that he made a mistake with tithing, you know, for all those years. But did years. he return the money? He didn't return the money to my <laughs> knowledge. But he, he said, hey, I don't regret it because I wouldn't have what I have. So it's really, you know, and then there were people that heard that. They came and said, listen, I've been tithing for all this amount of time. I'm going to continue to tithe. So there's a connection here between the pastors and the people that is just unbreakable, it seems, you know. Yeah, for a whole lot of folks, when you talk about Black people, you have necessity to talk about Black church. And in your work, you wrestle with and are highly critical uh, of Black churches. And I want to get to that. But first— Help us, help us again in terms of context. How did you get into film production, right? Did you wake up one day and say, I'm going to make documentaries? How, how did this happen? No, you know, I started doing the, the uh, slave sermon. 
documentaries. Mm-hmm. And so those slave sermons, I'm up to like episode 51 now. And I, I, I took about two years off. You know, this this period has really given me time to reflect and work on some other things which we'll talk about later. But um, I kept getting uh, comments from people with these slaves. Man, you should do a movie. Because I wasn't thinking about doing the movie. But these slave sermon episodes prepared me really well for them. And because I had to do a lot of editing and things like that. And so I thought about it. I said, yeah, and I'm in Atlanta and I have been doing these slave sermons. So the people kind of encouraged me to do it. That's what actually led to me to making to making this film. Now, this second film, uh, Holy Hierarchy, I was invited to uh, interdenominational theological college here in Atlanta uh, by one of the professors. His name is Dr. Riggins Earl. Oh, I know him well. You know Dr. Earl. And um, he invited me. He read my book, Holy Lockdown, and said, hey, man, listen, this is not for credits or anything. And I mean, but I just want you to come down to see how we're preparing, you know, these people to be, you know, seminarians. And I came down there and I stayed about six, six or seven months. And I read all the books, great books. And one of the books that I ran into uh, was uh, Shades of Freedom. And man, that just, well, that book right there just, I mean, it was very tedious because they had a lot of court cases in the 1600s mm-hmm. primarily that led to, you know, racist notions and precepts and, and things like that, which led to the book, Holy Hierarchy, the religious roots of racism in America. So, so let, let's move on to this. So it, it strikes me that your work, the production of these documentaries, fills a gap. That humanism in general and Black humanism in particular, we usually make our case through the spoken word and the written word. Right? We talk our history. We talk our values. We write our history. We write our values. But you've taken this and used a different art form to tell our story. Is that right? That's that's true, you know, because I don't know if it was a, a, a film prior to that 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 really, you know, criticized the took a humanist perspective, an atheist perspective, and criticized the institution of the black church before contradiction, the question of faith. But uh, you know, I'm also a musician, and I I, I, I tried that way, and uh, film kind of intrigued me. And like I said, when I was in, going over and evaluating some of my skills that I had with slave sermon episodes, I said, you know what? This is doable. Let's try it. Mm-hmm. And I had, had written written the books. I said, well, we need, we need a film out here. And I know people like films. They, they, they're engaging. And uh, they're still engaging in the films because, you know, Amazon Prime, if you don't have social engagement, they'll pull your film quite quickly. Mm-hmm. And so I've been on there now for about three years and I've uh, got a lot of good uh, feedback from it. And I'm looking forward to, to the next film. Absolutely. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited, man, and ready to do it because we're still in a predicament. I've got, I'll pack that a little bit. Well, you have to read between the lines sometimes. Now, I've got about maybe 35 or 40 commercials. And when I say 100% of the commercials... Tony, I don't mean 97%. I mean <laughs> 100% of the commercials. Whenever you have a black person and a white person in a commercial together, especially on uh, a humor humorous side, 
it's always the black person that is the smart one that is in control that is showing the clumsy white person how to do this or what they should be trading in or what they should be buying and how they should be doing this and i think that black lives matter has ushered in that sort of thing i think we're in an age of appeasement now and i think that uh when you look at the economic divide uh not much has changed but the way that you keep people quiet is to appease them and i so i think that we're being appeased right now uh, i think it's still segregation the money is very segregated i'm here in cincinnati cincinnati i'm looking out the window right now it's a river right here i'm over in newport right across the bridge very beautiful city but it's very segregated and i see that in, in a lot of a lot of a lot of places so you still have that i don't see the real power i see less than one percent of black people owning commercial property and we had this uh uh undertaking here in atlanta called black wall street and and, and i don't i don't mean to be too critical about it. But there was a black man, he bought a, a bunch of property. He's got, you know, his goal was to have a hundred black retail shops in there. But the problem with that is you didn't consult with the young people. You, you can't take on a project of that significance without talking to the youth. Uh, because uh, we could have done things a lot differently. And uh, I just see that we're still having this problem, but I think that Black Lives Matter has ushered in the age of, of appeasement. Look at the Super Bowl. Black people pretty much took over the halftime show of the Super Bowl. Uh, we are 13, 14% of the population, and we're like 97, 98% of the commercials. And when there's blacks and whites together, blacks are, you know, always the one on top. We win in the commercials. We win in the movies. But in reality, we still don't have those victories because you're talking about a group of people who were not a part of the business of, of cotton, not a part of the business of steel, not a part of the business of precious gems and diamonds, not a part of the steel industry, not a part of the industrial age, not really a part of the social media, the digital age. So there's a lot of work to be done and we need to let people know that this work is going to take human dollars, human effort, human sacrifice, human knowledge, and to get Blacks off of the there and then and put them in the here and now that any changes, any miracle that happens that we think is a miracle, there's going to be a human being behind. And I think you're absolutely right. Race still matters. I also hear you saying that there's a kind of hyper visibility for black folks in terms of entertainment, right? That black folks are hyper visible when it comes to entertaining the larger population, but somewhat invisible when it comes to control over the infrastructure of collective life. Well, well that's that's all. That's what we've shot for. We wanted to be seen. We, we strived for that. And I don't think we take it any, any further than that. Because as you, long as... You really we, think that? You I, think that's really all Black folks wanted was to be visible? I do to an extent. I do to an extent. 
I know a person right now, I don't want to mention his name, but I mean, wow, he wanted to be HNIC. He's got a tremendous product. And 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 like I said, I can't mention it, but that's all you really wanted. And you could have had so much more. If you have this amount of talent, why don't you take the next step to control that talent that you have? Why in there? see some things happening but you know it's really crazy because I live in Atlanta and we have a there's a Korean district where you just see nothing but Korean businesses and establishments there's a, a, a Chinese district where they own pretty much the block there's a Latino district I don't even see that district in Atlanta we have a black district where we where things that sit on this land are owned and operated and controlled by black people so it's, if it's not getting done, I question the desire. Well, let me push a little bit, because I, I would agree with you that black folks, like everybody else, have been interested in the American dream. Right. And have attempted to secure the American dream. And you see that within our cultural production. Right. You see that in what we've written. You see that in, in our films. You see that in visual arts, et cetera, et cetera. Right. You see this. But I don't know if we can explain the push of a Frederick Douglass or W.E.B. Du Bois. Right. Or I, I don't know if we can if, if we can and understand the desires of a Toni Morrison by talking in terms of just wanting to be seen, right? And 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 I, and I want to kind of tie this into your critique of brilliant critique of of black religion in the form of black church. It, it seems to be on on one level, you're right. There has been this interest in being seen, but with black church, what you get is a desire to be seen in a particular type of way right? The politics of respectability. If we can be seen in a way that projects us into the public arena and allows white folks to understand us in relationship to their own desires and wants, we can progress. But that comes with quite a cost. Am I I wrong on that? No, I I, I hear you on that. I I, I do agree on that. You know, it has to be beyond style without the substance. You've got to get beyond that. But, I, you know, it, it takes time. I understand that. But I think the church is the, it's like a discomforting pebble in our shoe. You know, we just can't. One more time. It's like a pebble in our shoe. You know, it's just, you know how you have that. I wanted that, folks to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> you have that, that, that pebble in your shoe. You know, you want to take it off, but we, we keep it in there. We don't, you know, like a, I always use this, this, um, Asian proverb, it says that uh, to exist on the spiritual practice that once saved you in the past is to carry the raft on your back after you've crossed the river. You know, we have crossed many rivers. We don't need to carry this raft on our back. And like I said, all the things that need to be done, that have to be done, are going to be done by by human beings, human dollars and things like that. So I just wish that the reaching out to supernatural entities and forces would, 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 would 
slow down some of the black people so that we so can... Let's talk in terms of contradictions and, and holy hierarchy. Mm-hmm. What's the most significant takeaway, right? If, if folks view these documentaries and only walk away with one thing, what should it be? Well, we'll stay contradictions. And please use this as an opportunity to talk a bit about the content of those two. Sure. Uh, contradiction basically looks at the powerlessness, the, the abundance of churches in black communities, coupled with uh, powerlessness. And why are there so many churches and yet so many problems in the black community? And my goal, Tony, was not to be condemnatory. That's what I set out to do. And I wanted the people to actually write the documentary themselves. And I went to many different cities. And I interviewed many, many people. And I didn't, I didn't cherry pick to any degree. And so the takeaway on that is how little we really know about what we're involved in. I think that is the the, 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 the basic takeaway from contradiction. We don't know. We are just believing because we've been told to believe. Um, if your grandmother is a theist, she can't tell you anything about humanism. She can't tell you anything about atheism or anything else. But I, I just found it striking when you ask people, you know, what did you learn today? That is one question that we just, if you ask the average person who went to church and say, what did you learn today? They can't tell you. And I've, I've been asking that question for over 10 years. Mm. They, we just don't get a solid answer. Well, the, I learned that God loves me. I mean, really? You learned that and you, you go... Every week you've been going for 30 and 40 years. What did you learn that you can take and apply towards your community? So I think that was the takeaway in contradiction. The takeaway in holy hierarchy was that things happen for a reason. Racism, in many ways, is a ranking system. Back in the 1600s, there were certain court cases that, like uh, stair steps, that led to this notion of blacks being inferior to whites. And there were precepts, which are just general rules that give people their ideas about other people, and how you should behave around other people, what you should think about other people. And so I, I lay out these court cases to explain we didn't get here because we did something wrong in the sight of God. We are in this position because of certain things that happened. And not because there was a God who was displeased with us to put us in this position that we were enslaved and things like that. So my the takeaway on holy hierarchy is to learn why we how we got in this position. How does religion and race affect one another? So that was my my goal in, in holy hierarchy. Like I said, man, I really enjoyed the guests, man. You all made it tremendous, man. And like I said, I'm anything that you're part of, man, I want to be a part of it as well. You know, that's very kind. And I, I, I want to bring up something that came to me as we were talking in, in Brooklyn after the shoot. And as you were talking, it came back to me, and it's this. Even the best efforts of the Black church, for example, are damaged in part because of this. The Black church, in order to function, in order for its theology to make sense, people have to be broken. What is the church without sinners? 
right? So it is it it's extremely difficult to highlight more productive values and possibilities when your theology, your self-understanding is premised upon people being broken and inadequate. Absolutely. You know, there's a saying, there's a paddle for every ass. <laughs> and I don't care if you're black, white, brown, yellow, male, female, rich or poor. Life has a paddle for you. We want to talk about the whites who were born with silver spoons. Let me tell you something. There are much more stories about whites who let this silver spoon tarnish. Uh, to keep the spoon polished takes a lot of work. There's a paddle for them, too, for the rich and for the poor. And so there are people born in, 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 in situations that are undesirable, that they had no control over. Let me tell you something. In this life, nobody's going to feel sorry for you. Now, let me tell you, when you go to church and you have these problems to where this preacher wants to act as the sunshine and come in and shine his ray of light on you, go home feeling better. I'm not to say that people don't have problems. Like I said, there's a panel for every behind. But let me tell you what I told my daughter, being a, a, an atheist, a humanist, a secularist, this is where I went with her. She called me up one day and Bubba and this, you know, all these woe is me stuff. And what I tell her is what my friend told me many years ago. His name is Damu. He lives here since then. He said, listen, man, you're not the first. And you're not going to be the last to have this issue. That is a very adult, grown folk way of telling you to put your big boy uh, uh, underwear on and get to stepping and keep it moving, roll your sleeves up and figure out this problem. Think your way through this problem. You're not going to come here and this preacher's going to say, there, there now and, and the music playing and we the, the music is so beautiful. I, I play music, so I hear the beautiful chords and stuff like that. But we conflate all that with the truth. We conflate the fact that you come in a neighborhood with trash all around, but you go to your church and it's beautiful on the inside. I went to some of the poorest areas in Atlanta. You step inside the church, you're like, wow. So we say this stuff has got to be true. But at some point in time, Tony, we have to be realistic about any type of problems that we're facing. Roll your sleeves up, damn it, and solve the problem. Think your way through it. You know, and 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 realize that no matter what happened to you, you're not the first that it happened to, and you're not going to be the last person that it happened to. That's a harsh reality. But swallow it and get over it. But the preachers don't do that. So it sounds to me like one of the secular values you're highlighting is individual accountability. Absolutely. Do the work. Do the work. Listen, the best thing that I can do, Tony, let me just say this. And people might not agree with this, but I think it's true. The best thing I can do for Black people is not to write a book. It's not to write a film. The best thing I can do to, for Black people is to get myself together. Because... If I didn't put my mask on first, I wouldn't have been able to put the mask on several other people. I've hired 22 felons at my job, right? 22 felons. And many of them have gone on to do great things, a lot better things. Some haven't, but some, most of them are okay. 
But if I didn't get myself together and think about and contemplate, how can I make Jeremiah Kamara better? You know, if you come into, if say like you have an, an Asian, they come into a black community, they see this black person, you know, he's an engineer, she's a, a doctor. And they don't have preconceived notions about black people because they haven't watched TV. They'll come and it's like, wow, black people really have their stuff together. But they're lumping us, but it started from the success of the individual blacks in that town. And that's where I think that we should go. I, I, you, you, do, you help others, but I mean, get yourself together first. And believe me, there are other people that's going to be around that's going to be watching you and you're going to influence a lot. So let me ask you this. Um, in, in terms of holy hierarchy, for example, you much of the conversation is about community. It's about the ways in which not individual Christians produce a theology, produce doctrines that are detrimental, but how churches as organizations as a whole produce doctrines and ways of thinking and behaving that are detrimental. Now, in terms of this humanist turn, is it just about individuals getting themselves together or is, is there a sense of collect of the collective as well? There's a sense of the collective as well, because I can't do it. No matter how hard I try to get Jeremiah together, I'm going to need the help of others. I can't do it alone. So, you know, when you get on that plane, they tell you, put your mask on first. <laughs> Christians tell you that, and it's not anywhere in the Bible, even if it was, it, I mean, they say that, you know, God helps those who helps others, right? I see that human beings tend to help other human beings. You know, I have I have a few friends who are uh, addicted to drugs, you know, here, here, in, this, here in Cincinnati, and um, they get help when they want help. They want to help themselves. When they want to stop, they tend to get the help. So tell me if I'm I'm right or if I'm wrong, but I, I, I hear a little of the, and, and I don't mean this in a derogatory way at all. Let me say that again. There's nothing derogatory in what I'm saying, but I, I hear a little of the lift ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Is there some of that in there? Tony, it has to be. It has to be. So listen, if to ask a white person not to be racist is to ask them not to participate in their privilege. You said one of your statements was people are predisposed to check the category of the other. You can go to the judge and you can say, my mother was an addict. My father left me when I was young. I grew up in the worst neighborhood. That judge will still give you 30 years. He's not going to, there's no a pity party he's going to throw for you. No one's going to care. We're going to have to do that. Will we get help along the way? Hopefully. Can we count on it? I don't know. You know, when I talked about the cotton industry, the precious gem, the steel industry, we weren't a part of those things. We don't have the resources to do those things. We can rely on them to do things, but in the meantime, we're going to have to pull ourselves up. It doesn't mean that we're not going to get help from other places. 
But as a, as an animal, as a social animal, man, we, we have to do that. It sounds harsh. It sounds rough. But what other choice do we have? So let me go back to, to something you said in terms of whites and white privilege. Isn't it precisely the case that we are we are asking whites to recognize white privilege and reject it? Isn't that part of what we're asking? Yes. Now let me tell you, Tony, this just happened, okay? I'm in the process of rehabbing a rental property in, in, in the Georgia area, right? I'm a business owner. I've been a business owner for, for 30 years. My wife mm-hmm. is a business owner. We're, we're in no debt. We have documentation. We had collateral. We couldn't get $30,000. You have whites that will go into the bank without a job and get $100,000. To ask them to recognize that, yeah, you do have this privilege, it's going to work for some. But what is that white going to do? Oh, that's okay. I don't want the money. I'm not going to participate in my privilege. What are they going to do? So then what does social transformation actually mean, right? What what does social transformation require of white people? Uh, as a community, but also as individuals. What does it require of white people? Tony, let me let me jump on my bandwagon. Jump me. on it. I'm going to jump on my bandwagon. It starts with religion. They have to realize that nobody made them special. Once we have that conversation, we can start to, to, to mend other fences. Here in Cincinnati, I was I was at a restaurant. In this restaurant, there was this huge mural with a white with a white Moses and white biblical characters. You might have a conversation, like Dr. D'Angelo said, about removing federal monuments, but the fact that you're not having a conversation about removing white religious iconography in this country, we're not ready. You can go and take Stonewall Jackson, you know, off the wall or whatever, knock them down, you know. But all these, my first date with my wife, we went to a place here called Eden Park. And right next to Eden Park, there's a place called Mount Adams. Mount Adams is Hills. We went on top, and a lot of people take their dates there. A lot of black people take their dates there. You look behind you, there's a huge white Jesus in the background. Everywhere you go, churches, hospitals, gas stations, Walmart. And I tell people every day, Jesus is white. Jeremiah, wait a minute. What? Why is he? Well, because he's white in Walmart. Walmart's the largest retailer. Listen, I could be playing a video game with, uh, you know, the headset, the virtual reality. If I have a bad heart and I'm going up this roller coaster, I could have a heart attack. 
The perception is I'm going up this roller coaster. The reality is I'm sitting here. Which one is more important? What you perceive. What can whites do? The first thing they have to do is realize, is, is eradicate white religious imagery throughout the hotels, Walmart, Walgreens. I could go on Walgreens right now after we hang up this interview and I will, when I stop in one, I'll send you a picture. There's going to be a book with a white Jesus or white Mary. You might not see it consciously, but your subconscious has perceived that it has, it perceives things in totality. Every day, Tony, on my phone, I have a list of movies. I'm at close to 30 films on Netflix, on Prime, that has white Jesus somewhere in the background. I mean, this is an important point, right? So you even, within the context of civil rights movement, you get someone like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. who argues there's more than one way to dehumanize, right? That you can dehumanize by thinking too highly of yourselves, of yourself, whites, or you can dehumanize by thinking too little of yourself, blacks, right? And there are role, there's a role that religion has played in this, that theology has been warped and shifted in order to justify the advancement of whites and to justify the dehumanization of blacks. And it seems to me your documentaries speak about this in rather powerful ways. But outside of documentaries and films that are sympathetic to a humanist orientation, what do we do about the way in which the larger industry projects Blacks as being indistinguishable from their religious commitments, right? How many Hollywood films with Black folks don't have something about church? Right. Right. So what do we do about that sort well, of orientation? You know, a lot of times, Tony, is not about the victory. It's about the attention that he gets. And there needs to be a movement to where we eradicate certain things. If we started, to, if we just brought this up and the world got the attention that they're up for, this happened. They'll say, wait a minute, it'll cause pause for people to say, yeah, I never looked at it like that. As a black person, and all they have seen is white imagery, because Christmas time, you know, Christmas and gentrification, uh, white Jesus and gentrification. <laughs> Listen, we don't talk about gentrification. When a white can, uh, can come in your neighborhood and arbitrarily raise the price once they get there, white is more valuable. Even black areas that keep the area clean, whites can come in there and pretty much raise the value arbitrarily and say, it's worth this now. Why? Because we're in here. We allow white nativity scenes. What does that say to a black child to walk past that? And they look at that and say, damn, you know, they might not go through the whole rigmarole of, 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 of thoughts and stuff like that, but subconsciously. And then they look out society. They see, wow, whites are the ones really controlling things. They own this. When I was in Africa, they owned the hotels, the gas stations the liquor stores, the animal exhibits. And so that's going to that's going to reinforce that notion that they are somehow superior. 
What there needs to be, Tony, is a discussion of superiority and inferiority. You don't have racism without those notions that exist. The precept that I am somehow made better than you, that there was a God who fashioned me better than he fashioned you, that put me in this predicament. I am of the so-called descendant of Ham, all this biblical nonsense when it really just came down to a ranking system and several court cases in the 1600s that separated blacks from whites. Tony, if I'm walking down the street and a, a white, you know, call uh, hits me and or attacks me or whatever like that, maybe it's prejudice. Maybe it's that category of the other. But when we go to court and the court upholds it, it becomes racism because racism is always connected to the law. Apartheid was a law. Jim Crow Bias was power. That's right. Jim Crow was a law. There needs to be a law to where white biblical iconography ceases to exist. We need to bring that to the forefront. Because you can't go, listen, wherever you are, Tony, if you're used to go right up the street to, to CVS. Look in the magazine section. Just yeah, do well, it. This is the buckle of the Bible belt. Yeah. Well, I mean, do it. Cut on Netflix. Just, just wait for a minute. You're going to see in some kind of way. So they have been groomed and they have been taught and they have been conditioned and they have been inculcated with the idea and the notion that I am superior to you. There is no way that the average white man sees the average black man as being uh, the same or whatever. Let me and, tell you, and let me give you a small example. Point. It's, it's one thing if you, mm -hmm. if you lodge that sense of superiority or entitlement within the confines of human laws and policies. That's easy to challenge. But here mm -hmm. has been the benefit of religion, that it has given that privilege it has given that privilege a trans-historical authority, right? right? A trans-historical authority, which means a much more difficult to challenge there you authority. Go. There you go. Much more difficult to challenge. But like I said, it may not be a victory because they're going to say we have a right to express ourselves. Okay, well, then you're going to have to prove that in the Bible to where he's white. To where all the, the, I mean, it's like all the characters, like they have a closer connection to that which is divine than black people do. Let me give you a, 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 an example. Just as a regular example of everyday living. I, I've owned, among other things, an emission station. Okay. I probably have about 40% white, about 50% black, and maybe 10%. Uh, Latino, right? Tony, I've been doing this for 24 years. So after 24 years, you see patterns. When they come to get a test, the segment of society that is more likely to get out and question what you do and tell you about your business are white men. They had a talk, I think his name was James Comer, I was in Memphis, and James P. Comer got up there and talked about the white man's propensity to be in charge. 
to think he's in charge of every damn thing. I find that to be true. And why do you have that? Because blacks are don't know what they're talking about? No, because there's somewhere in your psyche that your mom and her mom and her father and her have been told we're different. And the proof is in society. I mean, it's the U.S. narrative. And, and you mentioned Bible, uh, the, the Bible. But I wonder how many Christians, black, white, green, purple, yellow, the color doesn't matter. How many Christians in the <laughs> United States actually read the Bible they as don't, opposed right. to getting their sense of the Bible from what the pastor says? Absolutely. I, don't th- I think most of them don't read it. So what's actually in the Bible is of limited importance. It's the cultural narrative that drives their religious sensibilities, right? The cultural (laughs) narrative authorizes the religious commitment. Well, there will be, right, but there will be Blacks that say, wait a minute, they say that his feet were burnt, you know, bronze, as if they had been burned in a furnace. I can interpret that many ways, but the the Blacks that want to dip Jesus in chocolate will interpret it another way. Yeah, but that doesn't solve the problem, right? It doesn't Whether solve the problem. Jesus was brown there or you what go. have you. There you right? go. The, the color of Jesus doesn't change the fact that the fundamental figure of the Christian faith is highlighted for his ability to suffer. And what right. that generates within Christians, blacks and black Christians, this has a particular taint to it, is what it generates is a desire to measure our well-being through our ability to suffer. And like when I was growing up, they said, no cross, no crown. I remember that. And you you meant, you highlighted that very well in the in, in the documentary, Holy Hierarchy. Now, now, here's the thing. If that is the hallmark, the ability to suffer, then that means that I will inordinately seek a path of suffering. I will see things in a suffering perspective. Something, listen, Tony, something can happen to me and then something could happen to that person with that type of mindset. And I could just see it as something I just need to do and shake it off and get rid of and, and, and go about it and research. And they might say, oh, whoa, it's me. Let me give you an example. I walked from downtown Cleveland when I was 21 years old in uh, to, to East Cleveland, right? In some shoes at that time, this was in the 80s, they were called leg gloves. And if you know about leg gloves, they were paper thin. They were like this. They had, mm. you know, right? That's a long way. That's about nine miles from downtown to East Cleveland. I walked. When I got on the bed, I couldn't even put my heels on the bed. I had to hang them over the edge of the bed. I have been wearing orthotics for 38 years because the first thing that, and I'm making a point here, the first thing they're going to do is you need cushion. You need support. You need to have orthotics custom made. You need to buy shoes with much support. Sometimes, Tony, the answer is counterintuitive. My problem was I needed to build up the muscles in my feet. 
because it's redundant to wear orthotics. So right now, I've got a pair of the old school Chuck Taylors. Oh, uh, Chucks. <laughs> Chuck, without the Those support. high top. Yes, sir. Black Chucks. No. Okay, I see you. They're flat. I, but it took months of research. My feet are stronger than they've ever been. I'm not wearing my orthotics anymore. My heel and my toe are on the same plane now. Certain things that we think are, are, are just has to be, there has to be this guy. Sometimes we have to think in an uncomfortable way, something that is counterintuitive to reach a solution to things. And it is counterintuitive not to, you know, see things in a suffering way. Because this is what Jesus, his whole thing is to suffer. Because if I'm not, why do I go to church then if I, if I don't have something that I'm suffering? Mm-hmm. If I came to church with all my ducks in a row and things together, why do I need that? If, when you see it. Yeah, and that's embedded. I mean, you are absolutely embedded. right. It's embedded. And, and it, it gets generated in terms of our, of our cultural narrative. Think in terms of films, right? This idea of working for the benefit of others, this idea of redemptive suffering, Green Mile, Lilies of the Field, right? right. It is it, found within film. And it seems to me one of the things you do through your work is provide an opportunity to challenge some of the theological claims we have just assumed. There you and, go. And I want to end with this question. So we want to encourage folks to look at contradictions and to look at holy hierarchy. But give me two other films or two other documentaries folks ought to be checking out. My friend by Marcus Reyes. He's going to kill me when I'm not mentioning this. (laughs) And I can't think he's going to kill. Broken Faith. Okay. You can go to Broken Faith and then go to Mobfi. M-O-B as in boy. F-I. Mobfi. And, and watch that film, Broken Faith. And, you you know, that's a, a film that I think people ought to watch. Go to Ricky Gervais. He's got a comedy special. <laughs> He's going to take you in a different direction, you know, of, of, of this whole God thing. But we need to just, you know, keep this in the, in the forefront of people's minds. You know, Tony, Jehovah's Witnesses were out sun, uh, Saturday. And the pamphlets that they were passing out, black people had white Jesus on it. And you mean to tell me that's not a problem? That he didn't have any color, but but he's never black in your pamphlets that you're passing out. Never. We have to be stay on them. You don't know that the problem with that, then you need to go back to psychology 101. Because it is a problem. We need comedians to make light of this. Because Black people embrace humor. So we have to make them laugh about some of the, the, their ways of thinking. And, it, it, you know, it is a, a nonsensical, a lot of it. But we got to make them laugh about it. So we got to hit them with films, which I'm working on a film now. I've already uh, written, the, written the, the, uh, the script to it. It's called Crutches. And it's pretty humanistic, you know, in its nature. That film is about a loyal church member who's trying to free himself from his controlling pastor who has manipulated him into leaving his wife and marrying a woman that he barely knows. And what's crazy is based on a true story. Hmm. 
So I'm working on that. So we need to hit okay. them with films okay. and documentaries and comedy and point out, you know, the, the, the athletes that point up, you know, when they make a shot. Bring that up and how crazy that is. And how you would have made the NBA would bring your dad was an NBA player, et cetera, et cetera. You were six foot eight. You know, so we just need to keep it going, man. So many things. Yeah. Man, friend, I, I could talk to you all day, but I'm going to respect your time and bring this to a close. Folks, I am Anthony Penn. You've been listening to Pen Drop with my friend and special guest, Jeremiah Kamara. Jeremiah, always wonderful to talk with you. Man, thanks so much. The Pin Drop Podcast with Anthony Pin is a production of Only Sky Media, exploring the whole human experience from the secular perspective. Visit us online at onlysky.media. Thanks for listening. See you next time for Pin Drop.